Just a warning, this episode mentions thoughts of suicide. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, or if you just want to talk, you're not alone. You can call the Suicide Prevention Hotline any time of day or night at 800-273-8255. Okay, here's the show. It's hard because I still feel like I'm still very much suffering in a lot of ways. Like I actually did, I had a pretty bad, I had a horrible week mentally this week. So it's, it's cliche, but don't give up. You know, things do things do get better. They really do. Welcome to Getting Through. I'm Andrea Sonnenberg. Today I'm speaking with Mike. He and his twin brother were both raised by their mom. He's a DJ and a music producer, and he helps manage an event company, all while working a day job at a clothing boutique. I felt so grateful that Mike took the time to share his experience as a black man in L.A. and the culture surrounding mental health that he grew up with. He hasn't had much access to treatment and is still in the midst of figuring everything out, but his network of friends and his love of music help him cultivate the gratitude he relies on to get through. Well, why don't you start by telling me where you're from and where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in the like La Cienega neighborhood. Yeah, West LA kid all my life. Grew up skateboarding, playing bas- mostly playing basketball. My mom is my parents are from from Baltimore, Maryland. That's where my my whole family's from there. Uh, my mom moved out here in 1984. My mom was a two time Olympian in track and field. Oh wow, that's incredible. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so my mom moved out here in 1984 after the Olympics in Los Angeles, and she stayed, never left. My mom didn't start running until the 12th grade, which is kind of insane. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's always instilled uh, this this uh, confidence in me that I can kind of do anything I want. We were definitely a bit sheltered growing up. I want to say uh, my brother and I, like the La Cienega neighborhood, was pretty rough when we were growing up. Um, so she, you know, she mostly kept us off the streets, tried to keep us in day camp, tried to keep us in summer camp, tried to keep us in, you know, we, we were, we were YMCA kids. So we kept, we were staying in the YMCA, like, you know, that's where like most of our friend group from growing up came. My mom working in Brentwood, though, kept us more on that side of town than she did in our neighborhood growing up. So um, a lot of my friends were, were Brentwood kids. Mike remembers being an anxious and sensitive child especially when it came to his mom. I would always be super, super, super worried whenever my mom left, like to the point where if she didn't come back, come back in like, you know, what I deemed a, a timely manner, she would, I would be um, obsessively calling her phone and just kind of waiting by the door. So I was always a very, very worried child. But I will say in middle school, that was when my depression first like actually hit me. Like, and I really recognize it as, okay, this is, I'm depressed. And what did that look like? What did, what did your depression look like for a young middle schooler? It felt very heavy. Like I felt very, very heavy and very, um, just, just overwhelmingly sad. And I do remember very much feeling like I was in a daze and in a haze and feeling very detached and very, very detached from everything and everyone. I felt very, very disconnected. It was a really strange feeling that I'd never felt before. I just remember I kind of felt like I was just floating. Was there any treatment or how were those challenges dealt with at an early age? No, no treatment, no therapy, just uh, 
toughen up. <laughs> that was that was what I was always told. Toughen up, be tough. Don't you know? Don't let people pick on you. And I mean, mental health in in the '90s, especially in the black black communities, black families, was un, unheard of. You can talk about mental health. You can talk about being depressed. You had to be tough, and you you couldn't you couldn't let people punk you. And I mean, the, the, grew up in rough neighborhoods, so yeah, it was. If you were weak, you know, you were an easy target to get picked on or to, you know, just not, you didn't have it easy. Yeah, you were just told to toughen up and just deal with it and handle it, be a, be a man, you know. That was kind of how it was dealt with. So, yeah, there was no no, no treatment, no, no no talks, none of that. Did, did your family know you were suffering or? I don't even think they thought of it as suffering. They just thought of me as a sensitive kid. That was that was too worried all that was too worried all the time. Yeah, that, I don't think they even thought anything was wrong with me. I was always really, uh, you know, everyone always taught me how smart I was growing up. Also, was, so in a, you know, because I was so sensitive, I guess, and very attuned to what was happening around me. So they just, yeah, they just thought that this is who I was, and that I needed to grow tougher skin. Um, but I understand what they were trying to do. It's not easy growing up black in America. It just isn't. You know, my mom would always tell me I was an, an endangered species growing up, being a black man, which is a very harsh truth, you know. So I uh, I had to be tough. I really did. Um, like I said, I could have been handled with more care. I could have definitely, you know, gotten some help while still being told that like, OK, you're now you're getting this help. But maybe, you know, this is how the world is for you. So this is how you're going to have to be. I think that would have been more productive, but I, I do, I do understand it. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not necessarily mad at it. I just wish that I kind of was handled differently. Mike was able to see a school psychologist in middle school, but his feelings of not fitting in as well as anxiety and depression persisted. I went to uni high. And a lot of my friends ended up going to Palisades High. Cause like I said, my mom kind of kept us in Brentwood where she worked. Mike was straddling two neighborhoods. He had friends near his home at uni and also in Brentwood and the Palisades, which are affluent and predominantly white neighborhoods. So being black, I had a lot of white friends. I also had a lot of black friends. I had a very diverse friend group growing up, but the kids that I kind of hung out with were more my Brentwood friends. And that just was by design, by chance. It wasn't any, you know, just was what it was. So uni was more mixed, more diverse. But I remember wanting to be with, my quote unquote more white friends because that was just who I was friends with. And I feel like culturally, I'm not gonna say I didn't mesh with the kids at uni, but I just kind of felt lost and I would get depressed. You know, I'd really get depressed. I'd get really sad because I just felt like I wasn't with the people that understood me and people that really knew me. Yeah, it was just this weird, I felt culturally off. Like I was like, too white for the black kids, too black for the white kids. I couldn't figure out what my identity was. I just felt like I was never fully myself and I could never fully be who I truly wanted, who I wanted to be. And uh, since I was playing basketball, I kind of always got pegged into like the the jock kid. But you weren't necessarily that because you were a musician too. I was very, very, very into music, but I wasn't officially a musician. Um, But yeah, I was always secretly like an artsy music kid. Yeah, but by that point, I I had definitely started expressing, hey, I'm depressed. Even, you know, the first episode in in middle school, I definitely said, hey, I'm depressed. But by then, yeah, I definitely was way more vocal about it. But even even still, my mom didn't necessarily even know what it meant. You know, it wasn't even like she tried to not get me help. She just did. She genuinely just didn't know what it was. And it wasn't like now where we had all these resources and you could just quick Google search anything. 
she just didn't know. We didn't know. That just wasn't the era she grew up in. That wasn't how she grew up. Um, and so she didn't really know what to do. And, and even still, you know, if I expressed to her as a 31-year-old adult that I'm not feeling 100%, she's, she's definitely way more empathetic now. But even still, she's not fully all the way there. She just, and I don't think she ever will fully understand. It's just not how she grew up. So, um, but yeah, so by then I definitely started expressing that something was, that I didn't feel great, that something was wrong with me. After high school, Mike went to Santa Barbara City College, where he studied visual arts. At school, he was able to see the school psychiatrist once a month. I was happy there for a time. But at school, he also began partying, partially as a way to cope. Trying to turn my depression around, trying to escape. You know, I had my fun. I'll just say I definitely, I had my fun. His grades suffered, and two years in, Mike left school. As he remembered this time in his life, I could tell he was still processing everything. Talking about this is kind of, it's kind of hard because I just didn't really understand how how bad off I was, even though I was pretty bad off. I remember that summer I got back home and I knew something wasn't right. Like I just did not feel good at all. And uh, I was still kind of trying to hide the fact that my mom, th- my mom wasn't sure if I was going back, but then I think in her mind, she was like, he's going to go back at some point. But I was trying to, I think I kept trying to hide the fact that I was not going back at all and that my grades were, my grades sucked. And I'd say as that year progressed, that's when things got really, really bad. Um, and that was probably the worst of it. And that was when my mom finally got me to see an actual psychiatrist. Uh, so I was like 20, 21 years old. What happened? He was great. I, uh, I got prescribed medication and I, you know, I, I got a formal diagnosis of general anxiety, having general anxiety and major depressive disorder. And I started taking, uh, I can't remember what medicine, what medication it was, but it was, and I saw him once a week and uh, he was, he was great. The medication and treatment were helpful but Mike had trouble making new appointments when the psychiatrist's office moved. Currently, he wants to be in therapy. Cost is a huge barrier, and it's difficult for him to know where to start, especially since he's still in the midst of dealing with so much. Because I do have mood swings. I have pretty severe mood swings, actually. Our big thing, too, is um, anger. I feel a lot of anger often, especially this year. Like, I'll ruminate on thoughts, and I'll just anger myself. Um... And I'll think about people that have wronged me in situations that I've, where I've been wronged, where I've been, where I feel like I've been used, and and that often happens in those states where I'm feeling manic, like I feel very fiery and very just like, like I just want to like hit something or punch someone or or uh, or like just yeah, I just if you say the wrong thing to me, I will snap. Um, but I, and I know where a lot of that stems from too. So it's like, and I think that when I feel like kind of in, when I'm in these manic states, it really gets brought out. So as much as I can be jovial and happy and like, you know, fun, I, it, it it can eat, it can quickly turn into like feeling angry or feeling irritable and feeling, you know, it's been kind of building up for the past, you know, four or five years, but really, really last year when the Black Lives Matter movement happened, um, I just feel very angry about like race in this country. And I've been doing a lot of work diving deeper into racial issues and um, just race in America and uh, what it's like being black and just kind of diving more into the black experience. And just, I think one thing that's really, you know, caused a lot of my depression and anger this year is just, 
you know, I've just done a lot of reflecting this year. Obviously, I had a lot of time. So I just reflected back on a lot and just seeing all the microaggressions that have been around me my entire life, um, seeing how the system has been rigged against me literally my entire life. Um, like even this morning when I woke up, I was in a really weird place. And this is something I've been telling myself for some reason, this thought, it's like a, a weird time for this thought, but I was just like, you've been, you're doing the best of what you have. You're doing the best of what you've been given. You're doing the best of what you've been given. Like I had one of those perspective thoughts, but I've been telling myself that based on like race. Cause like, it's like, um, you know, like, cause I know how I've learned how rigged the system is against me. Just being a black man, uh, especially growing up in Los Angeles. I mean, like LA is, you know, it's supposed to be this free progressive place. And if you look into the history of it, it, it isn't at all. It's a very racist city and it's very covert racism. One example of this is the pervasive redlining that has left a lingering impact of segregation on many neighborhoods. Segregation that impacted Mike's middle school and high school. A lot of, you know, a lot of African-Americans moved here from the South in the 40s and were shunned out of owning homes and, or renting, even renting property in, in, certain, in certain neighborhoods. That's why you see most of the black people in South LA. That's why that's the part that they could live in, <laughs> you know, and they were exclusively zoned to that. And also the neighborhood that I grew up in. You know, I remember when the BLM stuff started happening, everyone was talking about redlining as if it was some like past thing that had happened. And I'm like, no, like I grew up in that. Like, <laughs> like th- th- this person that you know is a, is a, is a victim of, of systemic redlining. And now when you self-reflect and, and go back through the history, you realize how difficult it was. When you're in a dark moment, what do you what do you think about? I have suicidal thoughts a lot, and uh, that kind of takes over. And also, I I ruminate on a lot of like past things that I've done that that I've kind of done out of I guess just not feeling great, not feeling you know well, not being mentally there. I feel a lot of guilt, a lot of regret about certain things like how I've acted in certain situations or things I've said to people or I always feel this guilty, like weird, like, oh, like I shouldn't have did it. I shouldn't have did that. Oh, like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Like I'm like cringing to myself, like just like crawling in my own skin sometimes. But just so that, you know, we all do that. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. We all do that and we all feel that way. Good to know. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, but but I, it, it leads me to really dark places, and it leads me to... I don't think I handle it well because I'm so sensitive. Um, when you're in those moments, is there anything that gives you hope? Not really. No. Instead of focusing on this dark place, Mike often tries to find other ways to occupy his attention. I just end up distracting myself. <laughs> like, and not in a good way, you know? Like, I just... Like, I don't do anything productive. I just will, like, get lost in, like, YouTube videos. I've started meditating, which has been really helpful. I've always, I've always meditated, but I've really, really, really gotten into meditating. Um, like, Oh, that's great. Yeah, because yeah, I, I felt, because, uh, yeah, I just, I was like, this is getting too much. I need, I need to figure something out. Um, and that's one thing. I've always been very aware of my issues, and I've always... I'll end up in this. I'll end up in these really, really, really bad places, and I always kind of find myself picking myself back up and just being like, "Okay, like this cannot happen anymore." Because I bring myself down so much to the point of like almost no return. 
And I know that I don't want that for myself. And so I always end up kind of taking myself back to center. Part of what helps and inspires Mike are the stories and history behind the music he loves. My depression and my mental illness is what led me to dance music. I think what's so great about it and what's why it's so popular is that it's, a, it's, it's music for the misfits. And it's like that at its roots, you know, it's founded by gay black men in New York and Chicago in the 70s who were shunned out of society, um, being gay and black at that time. So that, that, them, finding, them finding space on the dance floor and listening to dance, you know, really danceable R&B music, which became disco, that was, you know, really emotional, really heavy, really soulful music that was from the church, basically. That was their, that was their liberation. That was their escape. That was, that was why, the, you know, what, what made them feel, you know, whole and complete and that they could find solace in each other on these, you know, dance floor club spaces. It's a really beautiful history. Um, and it started here in America. Most people think it's European, but it started here in America with gay black men. Would you say that sort of getting into music has always been now or has now been a way for you to get through, as we say? Absolutely. 100%. I mean, I have my uh, my songs that I listen to when I need to... When, when I'm feeling really down and um, when I'm feeling lonely, it's it's I it's the best. I I don't know what I would do without music. It 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 definitely it helps. It's really important. When you picture success for yourself, what does it look like? I just want to be able to make my music and do my art and just live comfortably. Um, I don't need to be like the richest person in the world. I don't need to necessarily even be married or have a family. I just want to be able to kind of be free and make my art. That's why I have to tell myself, you're doing the best with what you have. You're doing the best with what you've been given. And I have done well for myself in the music industry. I've definitely built my own platform for myself. And I've definitely built my own kind of little thing that I have going for myself. And I'm very proud of that. What advice do you have for others who are struggling in similar ways? It's hard because I still feel like I'm still very much suffering in a lot of ways. Like I actually did, I had a pretty bad, I had a horrible week mentally this week. So it's, it's cliche, but don't give up. You know, things do, things do get better. They really do. Things, it just takes some time. I mean, things do turn around. Like it's, it's, you know, it seems endless when you're in it and it feels like things are never going to get better. But they do. Something happens in life, an event happens in life that, you know, will make you say like, hey, wow, okay. Like, things aren't that bad after all, you know. One thing I'll do is I'll take a look around my room. I sit right here in this chair that I'm sitting in now, and I'll take a look around, and I have two laptops. I have music gear. I live in a really, I live in a pretty cool house with some really great guys. I have DJ equipment right here. I have a closet full of clothes, really nice clothes. <laughs> uh, and I have, you know, I have a lot of friends. I really do. And so I think just taking stock in what you have is, uh, is really big. It's a really, really big thing. It's like, I have so many things. Like I sit there and I'm looking, I have two laptops. Like nobody, a lot of people don't have just two laptops that they can just use, you know? It's like, so I'm, I'm definitely blessed in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, it's those little perspective moments are really, really big. According to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 
millions of Americans with mental illness struggle to find care. And of the almost 60 million adults and children living with mental health conditions in the U.S., roughly half of them go without any treatment. There are limited options and long wait times for treatment. And getting treatment can be costly because it's not always covered by health insurance. This means more people pay for mental health care out of pocket than for other types of care. Fortunately, there are organizations working to change this. Some offer care on a sliding scale or remotely. There are mental health care apps and crisis hotlines available 24-7. Be sure to check out links to resources that might be helpful in the show notes. Getting Through is made possible with the support of USC Hillel through the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative. It is produced by Hannah Beal, Micah Smith, and me, Andrea Sonnenberg. Original music by Micah Smith.